most of you have likely picked up from a few of the songs we've sung and from Psalm 23 we read earlier that there's a shepherd theme running throughout our worship service, the Lord himself being our shepherd, that's because we'll be in John chapter 10. John 10 is precious to me in a couple of ways. One way is that I was asked to write a paper on it in seminary, and that writing assignment began the week prior to my wife, Rachel, experiencing her second miscarriage. The loss was uh, painful for us, and there were many uh, questions uh, swimming through our mind, like, why would this happen again? But the Lord used this particular passage to bring great comfort to my soul knowing that our loss hadn't changed the fact that Jesus is a good shepherd. That in the midst of pain and the affliction of our souls and the late night questions from a broken hearted wife, Jesus was still the good shepherd for us. And in that moment, Jesus also became a great teacher to me as a husband revealing to me what it looked like to shepherd my wife in the midst of suffering, I wasn't without answers because in the person of Jesus I see a good shepherd and how the good shepherd leads his sheep, his flock, the church. Another way this passage is precious to me is that I love God's global purposes In Jesus Christ, to win for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Sometimes we call it frontier missions. I love the rock-solid assurance in Jesus' words that he must bring the sheep into his fold, all of them, among Israel And among all the peoples of the earth. And I love how he guarantees those sheep coming into that fold by purchasing them with his blood and rising from the dead to gather them. I love the confidence that when we prayed last week for Tim and Aaron to move to Oklahoma. And when we commissioned Max and Laura this morning to South Asia, we're not sending them out in vain We're sending them out as agents of the Good Shepherd who is gathering his sheep and who will gather his blood bought sheep from all over the world. If he gave his life for them, he will see to it that he gathers them. So I'm thankful that by his sweet providence, God has landed us here in John 10 this morning. John 10 is the biblical context in which we should see all of our work as a church and as missionaries. So I like like this passage, and I hope it might strengthen many of you this morning as well. Let's read it together. I'll begin in verse 1. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out 
When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Our passage begins with what John calls in verse 6 a figure of speech. Jesus uses a metaphor, a a word picture of sorts, very relevant to the culture in that day, to reveal something about himself in relation to the situation at hand. If you recall, Jesus just healed a man born blind in chapter 9, and the Pharisees get really perturbed by this miracle happening on the Sabbath and refuse to believe Jesus is sent from God, despite what the man born blind, who had then been healed, says about Jesus restoring his sight, despite what's blatantly clear about Jesus being the light of the world, the Pharisees reject it and they oust this man from the synagogue. The only people the Pharisees want gathering for worship are those who fear them and who bring them glory and who support their agenda against Jesus. And that's a frightening place to be. The only people allowed in this place of worship are those who approach God on our terms, not on the terms of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. That's a frightening place to be. And then in comes Jesus with this figure of speech that compares thieves and robbers to the care of a true shepherd. The thief and the robber climbs into the sheepfold by another way, but the true shepherd enters the sheepfold rightly. The thief and the robber is a stranger to the sheep, not really knowing them, but the true shepherd knows the sheep well, even calling each one of them by name. 
The thief and the robber speaks only things that confuse the sheep. His voice sounds strange to their ears. But the true shepherd speaks only for the flock's well-being, and so the sheep follow him. What is Jesus doing here? What is Jesus doing in the presence of these Jews and their religious leaders, the Pharisees? His figure of speech does two things simultaneously. On the one hand, it's a word of judgment against the Pharisees who are discouraging the people from following God's ways as they're being revealed in the person of Jesus himself. And on the other hand, it's a word of salvation spoken for his sheep so that they will follow the right shepherd, the true shepherd in Israel. We've heard of this happening before, haven't we? When we read our Old Testament, there are several instances when God's prophets come to Israel with the very same message, this very same figure of speech, which indicates the false shepherds in Israel should be condemned, but at the same time commends to the people of God the true shepherd in Israel, namely Yahweh. We see this, for example, in places like Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and Zechariah 10 and 11. And in each case, the leaders over Israel are cursed by the Lord for not reflecting the Lord's care over his covenant people. Unlike the Lord who faithfully feeds and attends his flock, the false shepherds fed themselves while Israel starves. Unlike the Lord who protects and pursues and gathers his sheep, the false shepherds scatter God's people without care to search for them. So the Lord curses them, for example, in Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. But it's in the word of judgment against the evil leaders in Israel that we also get further revelation of the true shepherd, the Lord himself. So, for example, in Ezekiel 34, as he's cursing the false shepherds, we get things like this. Behold, I, the Lord, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will rescue them from all the peoples where they have been scattered. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel with good pasture, rich pasture. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and I will feed them all in justice. In fact, in those same places, the Lord also reveals that part of his plan would be to send a unique shepherd into Israel. Unlike any other shepherd who would lead the flock as Yahweh himself leads the flock. He would even be like uh, David when he shepherded God's people as a king, but far superior in authority and care and leadership and power over Israel and as well as all of the nations that he gathers. This particular shepherd's name would even be called the Lord is our righteousness. So a word revealing the Lord's judgment against the wicked while simultaneously revealing the Lord's salvation for the sheep. 
That's how we find this figure of speech used in the Old Testament. And Jesus is doing the same in our passage. The major difference is that he speaks the familiar word picture again while embodying its ultimate fulfillment. It wasn't the case anymore that Yahweh would send a shepherd because the true shepherd in Israel, God's own son, was standing there before them in the flesh. Yahweh had in fact sent him. The people don't understand this, of course, as verse 6 points out. They did not understand what he was saying to them. But that doesn't keep Jesus from speaking for the benefit of his sheep. And as he does, we see four things revealed about the good shepherd. First of all, we see the, the life the shepherd gives to his sheep. We see the life the shepherd gives to his sheep. Verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now wait just a second. I thought he was talking about being the good shepherd, right? Now he's talking, I'm the door. Which are you? Right? The shepherd leading the sheep, the door through which the sheep enter. We know the answer is yes. This is part of what makes him the good shepherd. Sometimes when we think about Jesus as the good shepherd, we merely are thinking in terms of like... uh, He is ethically good. He's just morally upright. That's the kind of shepherd he is. Just a morally upright shepherd. That's that's not all that's that's in mind here. Okay? Jesus certainly is that. Morally upright. But we should see that his goodness here in this passage is bound up with what he is for his people. Jesus' good shepherdness is revealed in the fact that he is the door. The gateway into the flock. So he's the shepherd who is also the door. This makes him way different from all the other leaders who are thieves and robbers. The thief, it says, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus comes that we may have life and have it abundantly. If you notice in verse 9, Jesus ties this abundant life to salvation. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, which he then illustrates with going in and out to find pasture. And then later on, in chapter 10, verse 28, he calls this abundant life eternal life that he gives to the sheep. So the thief and the robber basically amounts to anyone seeking to rob us of salvation and eternal life through Jesus The thief and the robber basically amounts to anyone seeking to rob us of salvation and eternal life through Jesus. Whether that's a teacher who is also a child of the devil, like Jesus calls the Pharisees in chapter 8, verse 44. Or another leader or author or spiritual counselor that's pretending to solve all the world's problems with his Christless philosophy of life. Or even the spiritual powers of darkness themselves who stand behind the false leaders, and the idols of this world. 
anyone or anything that steers you away from entering life in Jesus is a thief. We can name some of them. Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Hitler, Karl Marx, Oprah, Joel Olstein, Tom Cruise, Scientology, leaders in the New Atheist Movement. This is a good one from Gary that he sent me this week. Fitness instructors who promise more than health, but the new you. Pastors and teachers in seminaries that neglect pointing people to the gospel. I don't care if they're teaching the Old Testament. Self-righteous organizations that are not captivated by the love of God in Christ. And every other idol that we can possibly pin a name on that tempts us. Anyone or anything that steers you away from entering life through Jesus as a thief. Jesus alone comes that we may have life and have it abundantly. But what does this abundant life include? We already know Jesus isn't talking about how to live your best life now. The abundant life he's talking about has nothing to do with obtaining health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. Rather, it has everything to do with our fellowship with God. The abundant life Jesus is talking about is salvation. And as we've learned from John, that comes with incalculable spiritual riches. Especially when we're talking about salvation in terms of a relationship with God Almighty. So, for example... We know John 1, 1 through 4 very well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And then it talks about God, the Word create, God creating all things through the Word, and then it says, in Him, in this Word, was life. And the life was the light of men. So we know from chapter 1, verse 4, that in Jesus is life, and this life was the light of men, and to have life, is to experience a vibrant relationship with that eternal Son of God, by whom all things exist, and who created the world and gives life to everything in the world, not from some other source outside of Himself, but from Himself. He is the source of life. We also know from chapter 3 that true life is bound up with escaping God's eternal wrath, which hangs upon all those not in Christ. And then enjoying God's life, which is a right relationship with God himself, the eternal one. And then from chapters 4 and 7, we find that Jesus is the one, right, with his conversation with the woman at the well, or with the Jews at the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is the one who nourishes us with living water coming from the well of the Holy Spirit himself, who never runs dry of eternal life. All all the life of the kingdom of God, we saw this in chapter 7, all the life of the kingdom of God that the Holy Spirit empowers after the return of Christ, that life is available now through the mediating work of the Holy Spirit as we come to Jesus. 
So all these places in John are speaking to the sort of life Jesus has in mind, which is essentially the life of communion with God, whom the Old Testament calls the fountain of life. And the Lord isn't stingy with what he offers you of himself either, right? It says abundant life. You'll have this life in abundance. Jesus says that if you come to God through him, the door, you will have all the pleasures of the eternal God you could ever dream of. It's not like you come to me and I'm just going to give you this much of God. No, you come to him, you get all of God. You get him all. So the pastures in which he leads his sheep are the pastures of his kingdom or of his salvation. The idea is that when you come to Jesus as the door, every day he'll lead you into the pastures of knowing God, of tasting of God's goodness, of knowing and seeing and beholding God's holiness, of experiencing the riches of God's kingdom, of taking in the, God's nourishing food, the bread of life found in his word of enjoying the eternal security of a well-kept farmland that will never disappoint you day after day after day. That doesn't mean the difficult days will never come or the afflictions of this life won't tempt your soul and make it very weary, but it does mean that you will always have more than enough when you have God, when you have God himself. Was it not David who said in the Psalm 23 of his Lord being a shepherd to him, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Everything is bound up. Even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me is enough for David. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The problem with the thieves and robbers in this world is that when you follow them, you never get enough. You know, all you get is temporary thrill after temporary rest, after temporary security, after temporary riches, after temporary satisfaction, and so forth. That's not so with Jesus He leads you into fellowship with God, a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, love, justice, goodness, and truth. By giving you God, He gives you more than you could ever dream of or will ever be able to comprehend fully. That's what it means for finite beings to relate to the infinite being of God Himself. Right? We get this notion sometimes that like, once the resurrection happens and we're all with God, we just get the whole picture and it's like, all right, I've seen God, what's next? There is no what's next in the age to come. He is infinitely holy and infinitely good and infinitely loving. Every single day will be a further and further and further revelation of his person to finite beings he's still sustaining. Man, you will never run out of life. And it's the same now when you approach him through the door. He's more than enough for us, infinitely so. 
That raises a question, though, in a universe where God is so holy. How is it that Jesus as the door can lead sinful people into such fellowship with God? If God is rightly angry with sinners and they justly deserve to be condemned, how can anyone enter his presence and experience abundant life? Well, that brings us to the second thing revealed about the shepherd's goodness. Namely, we see the shepherd, we see the death, the shepherd dies for his sheep. We see the death, the shepherd dies for his sheep. Verse 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. A few things come together here. The hired hand is brought into the picture to contrast his kind of ownership with the sheep with that of the shepherd. He's hired, the shepherd owns. It also contrasts the extent he's willing to care for the sheep with that of the shepherd. He flees, leaving the sheep exposed. The shepherd will even give his life for the sheep that they might not be exposed. So Jesus' ownership of the sheep and his extent of care for the sheep, they come together to reveal something very marvelous. But we'll only see it rightly and fully if we understand Jesus' relationship to his Father first. Because Jesus' relationship to his Father is what underlies this ownership and what underlies the extent of Jesus' care for the sheep. And what we're essentially left with is this. In terms of ownership, Jesus is explaining why he knows the sheep as well as he does. It's not merely, a, uh, uh, um, when, we, when we read there, I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. It's not merely just a matter of comparison, but a matter of grounds. He knows the sheep precisely because the Father and the Son know each other, is what he's saying. Since the Father knows the Son's complete unwavering devotion to his will, he entrusts him with the sheep. He gives his son a people out of the sinful world. And since the son knows the father and his will for the sheep completely, he not only knows the sheep that the father has entrusted to him, but he also knows what he needs to do on their behalf. He must come and give his life for them. This is where we meet the extent. That's the ownership. That's just the ownership of the sheep. This is where we, but this is where we meet the extent of Jesus' care for the sheep. He must die a death that both pleases his father and benefits the sheep. That's what kind of death he dies. One that pleases God and benefits his people. 
Jesus' knowledge of his Father's love for the sheep, despite the wrath they deserve. And Jesus' knowledge of what the sheep need to be with God, that wrath absorbed and taken away, drives him to the cross where he dies as a substitute for the sheep. Whenever you see that word for a lot of times in relation to Jesus' death, I lay down my life for the sheep. We're talking substitution. It's a substitutionary death that he dies. The penalty we owe the Father for our sins, he pays on the cross. The punishment we deserve for rebelling, he absorbs in his body on the tree. The condemnation that hung over us for being lawbreakers, Jesus himself suffers it on the cross. And all of this so that we could have so that we could have the wrath of God removed from us and then be brought into fellowship with the holy God. He did this so that we would never have to endure the wrath ourselves and so that we could experience the brilliant intimacy known between the Father and His Son. The cross is where God's ownership of the sheep and the extent of care for His sheep is demonstrated most clearly and pointedly in history. Because at the cross we see how far the Father was willing to go to possess His sheep. He was willing to give up his own son on their behalf. And we also see how extensive the father's love and care for his sheep really is. He poured out his wrath on Jesus as our substitute that, we, that he might then give us himself and all of himself. So whatever dark days you might be suffering now or whatever worldly afflictions that come upon you, if you, if you come to know God through Jesus... Never do you have to question the extent of his care for you. Never. No matter how hard it hurts in this life, you do not have to, have to question whether God cares for you. You only need to look at the cross to see that he in fact cares for you. What greater care, what greater love can you fathom that even comes even remotely close to the eternal, eternally precious Son of God dying as your substitute? The pains of this life are real, but without the cross, they would never go away from you, but only get worse, especially after Judgment Day. And the cross reverses that dilemma for those who believe. So that you not only have God now in your momentary afflictions on earth, but they are preparing for you, all those momentary afflictions are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Why? Because you have God and will only know Him more for eternity. Because of what Jesus has done for you in dying as your substitute. That's the death. The shepherd dies for the sheep. Number three, and this is connected to his death, we see the nations the shepherd gathers as his sheep. We see the nations the shepherd gathers as his sheep. This is where Jesus' substitutionary death comes together with global missions. Verse 16 tells us what 
kind of death Jesus died. It was a substitutionary one, and in this way, he didn't die for nothing or merely to secure possibilities. He died to secure a people, his father's sheep, that every one of them might come to God and experience eternal life. So coming off the assertion that he lays down his life for the sheep, he says this in verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, that is this Jewish fold I'm speaking to. So he's got Gentile sheep to rescue as well. Gentile sheep that he must die for. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Don't miss that, Max and Laura. Don't miss that, Tim and Aaron. Or Dan and Amy or Jansen or anybody else. Don't miss that rock-solid assurance that all Jesus' blood-bought sheep will be found by the shepherd of all shepherds. I have other sheep. I must bring them. They will listen. There will be one flock. That's a word that will keep you laboring hard on the mission field as you encounter hardened hearts again and again and again. He will bring them. They will hear his voice. There will be one flock. He has blood-bought sheep that need to hear his voice, and you're his agents in ensuring they get the message. His death procured everything necessary for people to be saved in South Asia and in Holdenville. The idea is not that Jesus died for them, and some of them might come. No, if Jesus died for them, then all of them will come because he's the one bringing them and calling them and God intends to set Jesus over them as a shepherd over one flock. The good shepherd's death doesn't result in wandering sheep, ultimately. Rather, because of his death, the sheep will be gathered from all nations, just like Revelation 5.9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals, O Lamb of God, For by your blood you did ransom for God a people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. There's no question about it. I bought them, they're going to reign on the earth. If there was ever an allusion to Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament promises of God gathering the nations through his special shepherd, so many, the Old Testament says, that the land of Israel would not contain them, so many that the tents in Jerusalem would be bursting at the seams. Get those tent pegs out. There ain't enough room in here. With Jesus' words, we see that day has arrived. That day's arrived and is coming. We see that the Messiah's time to gather and rule the nations has dawned. Yahweh is, in fact, gathering his people under the chief shepherd, Jesus. And the sheep are not only from the fold of ethnic Israel, but from all the Gentile nations as well. And nothing will stop him. What does he say in John 6, verse 39? (laughs) 
This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me but raise it up on the last day. He's not going to lose any. He's going to raise them up on the last day. Church, knowing this truth ought to make us preach the gospel like crazy to everybody and pray for God to save his sheep. That Jesus bought them with his blood doesn't mean they come apart from hearing about him or apart from our praying for their salvation. Faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10 says. But it does mean that our labors in preaching and praying will never be in vain. The Lord's sheep will come when they hear his voice in the gospel we preach. So keep preaching and praying God's will for saving his sheep. That's a will that cannot be thwarted. And those are prayers that will be heard. If that lofty truth sits on you this morning as irrelevant for your daily life, let me clarify that Jesus' words are always relevant for those who obey his will. If we come to Jesus' words to give us therapeutic comfort for a life we would have lived anyway without Jesus, then we will certainly find his words irrelevant. And we will certainly find truths like this irrelevant. But if we engage in the very thing he's talking about, like his global mission to gather other sheep, and then later on in John's gospel, our participation in that mission, then these words become very relevant as we deal with the hardened hearts of our lost neighbors and the lost peoples of the world. These words are a rock when missions is our main business. Nothing can stop Jesus from gathering his blood-bought sheep. Which leads us into the last revelation of the shepherd's goodness. Namely, we see the authority the shepherd exercises for his sheep. The authority the shepherd exercises for his sheep. Read with me verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. What kind of authority do we see in these words? What we see is that when Jesus dies, he he does not die as a mere victim but as a son accomplishing the sovereign will of his father. The cross has been designed, even commanded by his father. This charge I have received from my father. He has authority to undergo Roman crucifixion and authority to raise himself from the dead And in these events, his death brings atonement and his resurrection brings triumph so that all the sheep given him by the Father will be gathered as one flock under one shepherd. A flock cannot be gathered by a dead shepherd, in other words. It must be gathered by a shepherd God raises from the dead. This shepherd in particular who died for a sheep. So what kind of shepherd are we talking about then? 
We're talking about a shepherd that has authority not only over the circumstances leading up to his death, not only over the Jews who will hand him over and the Romans who will crucify him. I mean, part of us is saying, I thought he was a victim. I mean, look at, look at what they're doing to him. It's just that we need to read this text in light of that one. It's not out of control. It's under control. So he's got authority over the circumstances, authority over his enemies, the Romans and the Jews who are against him. He not only has authority, he also has authority over the days that are passing as his hour draws near to die. We've seen that again and again in the Gospel of John. He escaped from their hands because his hour had not yet come. They could do nothing to him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus said these things. His hour was on its way. Everything's in control. He's got authority over the circumstances, over his enemies, and over the passing of the hours. And then we also see that he has authority over death itself that will only be able to hold him in the grave for the amount of time that he gives it permission to. Since Adam fell into sin and then death fell upon the human race because of sin, there's no human being on the face of this earth that has that kind of authority. There's no human being that has authority over death. Jesus, on the other hand, does. The very purpose of his death is also to be raised. His death and resurrection are a joint venture in the design of his mission to save the world. He's the one controlling this story according to his Father's will. Not sin, not death, and not his enemies. And that should give us great hope that what it says of the shepherd in Revelation 7 will actually happen. You can go there with me if you want. Revelation 7. Revelation 7 gives us an amazing picture because the shepherd of the sheep is also the lamb of the sheep. The lamb who gave his life for the sheep. And those two things are brought together in Revelation 7. I'll start in verse 13. One of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? He's talking about those, that great multitude from every nation, up in verses 9 to 12. Who are these people? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. Remember, we talked earlier about God's presence. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And what will he do? He will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's where the Lord is taking all of us who listen to Jesus' voice and follow Him. 
If he had authority to lay down his life and take it up again, then he has authority to take your life up as well when you lay down yours for him. He has authority to take your life up at the resurrection when John chapter 5 says he will utter a word and those who are in the tombs will rise. Death cannot stop him from bringing all his sheep into the Father's presence. And he's already proven that for us when he walked out of the tomb alive and appeared to the apostles who've written these words right here for us to believe. So Jesus is a good shepherd, folks. He's a good shepherd. If you choose to follow him, then he will give you an abundant life in fellowship with God. Don't let the thieves and the robbers of this world deceive you, but come to Jesus for true living. Jesus can give you his abundant life with God because on the cross he died the death that you deserved, but which you couldn't ever pay in full yourself. Trust that the death the shepherd died for the sheep is sufficient for you, regardless of the sins you've committed. Open your eyes to see that Jesus is now gathering the nations to himself. Now is the day of salvation. So that all his blood-bought sheep will come under his incomparable care and eternal kindness. And then leave today with the confidence that if you belong to Jesus' fold, there's nothing that can stop his mission to bring you into the Father's presence ultimately. Death itself has been ultimately conquered by him already. And if death itself has been conquered, the very death caused because of our sin, then that's a sign to us that nothing will keep us from the Father's presence in the future and nothing will keep us from the Father's presence now in this life. Every day we rise, we can come to the Father through the door who is also the shepherd of the sheep.